I'm getting mostly calls now for things of doing analog versions of, you know, meat analogs, fish analogs, cheese analogs, things of that of that nature. This new company that I'm working with, it's plant-based tuna, and it's amazing. The genius that came in was Chad working with our food scientist. As you can see, it looks and flakes and has the mouthfeel of tuna. So is it a processed food? Absolutely. Fortunately, this product is very clean by process standards, but I make my peace with it in the sense that 95% of the animals that we kill for human consumption are coming from the sea. We see the devastation that's going on on the land. We do not know the depth of how we've destroyed the oceans. That's why I think this is an important transition. That's Peter Chavoni, and this is The Proof Podcast. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. 
That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Peter Cervoni, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Simon. Not a problem. We have had a, a riveting 30 to 60 minutes of conversation prior to this. I'm very excited to hear your story, hear how New York and the vegan or plant-based scene has changed over the last two to three decades and yeah, just genuinely get insight from one of the world's greatest vegan chefs. Well, thank you very much. I don't, I don't particularly like monikers like that. Um, I really have tried to stay humble in my career and I really just feel like it works through me. You know, I'm just, I'm just the dude making food. That's what we used to just, you know, we used to goof around. I mean, I appreciate it. I have been doing it a long time. I know I can, I can rest secure knowing that I've inspired a lot of the chefs that are out there today doing some great things in the world. I know I fed a lot of people and made differences in people's lives. So, um, but greatest, no, let's not, uh, but I thank you. You're, you're a humble man, humble <laughs> man. And I know you like to keep things low key. So right. let's, uh, let's try and change that. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> now let's, let's go back to the beginning for you as, as a young man growing up in Manhattan, eating animal-based foods, you've got an Italian heritage. Right. So no doubt you had some delicious meals being served up by mother and father that, you know, had, had beef and, and eggs and cheese and, and whatnot in them. Everything. Take us back to the start where your journey with plant-based nutrition, food in general started. Sure. Well, I would say that it started, well, my, my career as a chef started quite accidentally perhaps. Um, I had always worked in restaurants from, from the time I was 15. And I had just been kicked out of law school and I was working in this local restaurant in, uh, up in Westchester. And I used to, I was the only waiter. It was me and four other waitresses. And I knew early on, I'm, I'm probably about 24 at this point, 25, that one of the ways to a woman's heart, not only through food, is through humor. So <laughs> I always used to goof on the chef He's probably long gone by now, God bless him. But I used to run behind the line and do my impression of him. He was an old school Italian dude. And one day the owner comes to me and says, hey, guess what? You pissed off uh, Nello, his name was. You pissed him off so much that he doesn't want to make food for the staff. He's like, you have to make food for the staff. So I was like, okay. So I started making food and I had gotten to know them pretty well and they knew that like, Hey, this guy just like got booted from law school. That's the kind of thing he wanted to do. He doesn't know what he wants to do. They suggested, they said, go to culinary school. I applied and got into the culinary Institute of America, not knowing there were probably four or 500 culinary schools in the country. I just happened to pick the best one in the country, maybe one of the best in the world. And what happened was I went from the standard American diet and a very Italian American centric diet as far as tons of meat and sausage and meatballs and pastas and cheeses and, and things of that nature. I come out of the Culinary Institute of America now armed with this new knowledge. I used to call it the you kill it, I'll cook it club. My first job out of culinary school is at, is at the fabled River Cafe in Brooklyn, right underneath the Brooklyn Bridge. And there I had the opportunity to cook antelope, bear, bison, alligator, experienced uh, seafood that I had never experienced before, sea urchin and things of that nature. 
So, and I, I also think on, you know, there's, there are no mistakes. We kind of discussed that earlier. Everything happens for a reason. I don't think, well, it's hard to say if I would have be, would I have become vegan had I not been, you know, if some things in my life were different, but I think becoming a chef expedited my, my movement towards a vegan diet. Through what you were exposed to. Exactly. And I think that's because I was able to make a very visceral, immediate connection between what's going on the plate and where it's coming from. Which a lot of people consuming food out there find it very hard when you, when you serve something up that looks so distant to what it looked like at the abattoir. Right. Absolutely. I like that you use the word abattoir too. It's, it's, not, it's not used that much. Is it used <laughs> a lot in, in Australia? It's becoming a little more popular. Oh, okay, it? yeah. So get a little bit more conscious of what's happening. Right. So, and, and exactly. And, and sometimes people make the connection, but they choose to ignore it anyway. And like you said, it's very easy when you have a piece of filet mignon, you're not thinking about this entire living, breathing animal. So I think the light switch first went off uh, during soft shell crab season. At this point, I'm a sous chef at a country club in Westchester. It's soft shell crab season. The, the crabs have, have molted. They've lost their, their hard shell, which is protective. And, you know, they can be quite ferocious, you know, if they're, if they're provoked. They come in alive and you start running some water and you literally have to, in one hand, you hold the crab. You flip open their, their shell, you pull out their lungs, you rip out their gonads, and the coup de grace is you pull out their eyeballs. And you're doing this while they're trying to defend themselves, which they can't do a very good job of, but you feel them kind of like, it feels like a little bit of a tickle, but they're trying to defend themselves. And I remember it affecting me so deeply that I did something that sous chefs don't normally ask chefs to do, but I was like, hey, chef, I was like, I will do anything today to not have to do these soft shell crabs. So he just jumped in there by the sink and continued to clean them on. I, I went on and did whatever I wanted to do. Maybe I would say a week or two later, one of my specialties was a saucier and the basis for a lot of uh, French sauces is a veal glass, a demi-glass, which is just roasted veal bones. And it's a whole long process, takes like 24 hours. I was very good at it. And I had four or 500 pounds of veal bones waiting to go into the oven. And I asked the chef, I said, chef, you know how much a calf weighs? And he was like, you need this information. Why now? And I said, I don't know. It's just trying to figure out how many calves this is. How many baby cows do we have here? And I think that for me was the, the aha moment, the epiphany. Trigger, yeah. Right, the red pill moment where it was like, I can't go back. I've, I'm going down the rabbit hole and now I see like the veil's been lifted and I was like, this is so barbaric and this is being repeated. You know, I'm one little restaurant in one city. This is being duplicated all over the world, thousands of times a day, millions of times a day. And at that point I could not go back. So I think I finished out the season at the country club, um, essentially doing everything by memory. I didn't, uh, the, it was a pain in the butt to the chef, but I was like, you know, I would make the sauce and he would taste it. But after that, I knew I needed to make a change. Didn't even know that there were vegan restaurants in, that existed in Manhattan. And just taking a tiny step back. So you made, you made that, that change and it was almost instant over a week or so. Did you have to go away and do some research and, and work out, well, what am I going to eat? Yeah, that's a good question. And 
I have a pretty good memory. Most of my friends are amazed sometimes what I'll recall from 40 years ago from something that was said in grammar school or things like that. The way I remember it is that I started to eat. I, I was I said I was going to become vegetarian, and I think I ate pizza every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. At the time, I had high cholesterol, and the doctor was like, cheese is not going to help your cholesterol. So I, it was one of these things like, screw it, I'll just become vegan. But I don't ever remember making this clear decision until March 15th. Um, I had been out in Montauk. I was kind of taking some time to gather my thoughts and do some journaling. I just wanted to get away from everyone. March 15th in the middle of the Hamptons, nothing is going on. In fact, it was snowing that day. I bought a beach chair out onto the onto the beach. It was snowing. The people at the, at the bed and breakfast were like, this guy's insane. <laughs> but I remember it just kind of, the words just came out of my mouth. I was like, I'm vegan. And it was kind of, who said that? You know, it was one of those things. And I remember coming back the next day telling people, and they said, what happened? You were gone for two days. Now you came back and you're vegan. But for me, it was, it was a very powerful decision and it was, it was very transformative. And uh, I mean, sitting, sitting from my chair now and amongst what is a fairly a trendy movement, the, the vegan movement, you know, and, and going from eating meat to moving through to a vegan diet in a week kind of seems, you know, something that I can see as normal and that someone today could achieve. But 21 years ago, there was a lot less vegans, although the movement has been around for a long time. How did you find telling friends and family that you had decided to cut out animal products and what that would mean? And how was that accepted? It was odd. I remember telling my parents and God bless them. They were very, you know, their main concern for me was my health. They, they did not, they, they, they did not give me any hassle about, I mean, there was some of that, not, I won't say guilting, but Oh, these are the traditional foods. Like during the holidays, this is what, you know, everyone's been eating great, great grandparents. You know, this, this recipe was passed on. And I remember very early on saying, you know, the important thing about this meal today is that we're all together and we're sharing it and that we love each other. What's being served to me doesn't matter. So my parents were okay. What I found was very strange was my friends were, and it's so strange, but they immediately thought something was wrong with me. And they, it was, I almost had to convince them that I was still heterosexual. For some reason, they equated veganism with weakness or with homosexuality, which was very strange. And some of them still will joke around 21 years later, like, do you still like girls? You know, so it was, it, was very, it was very, very strange. But I do remember there not being a lot of information. I mean, PETA, the organization was... was around and was still had been had been around for probably 10 15 years before that but certainly didn't have the same the same resources and it was very misunderstood a lot of times you'd have to explain even what vegan meant you know today everyone knows what it is i imagine going to different restaurants in new york that that weren't necessarily vegan or vegetarian and and asking for a certain dish to be made vegan 21 years ago would have been a little harder than today Oh, it's very difficult. In fact, it's it's uh, in, in a very weird kind of juxtaposition of of things. One of my jobs at the River Cafe, my first job at a culinary school, was I was in charge of making the veggie plates. So if someone come came in and wanted a vegetarian plate, I would make it. So I would just run all over the kitchen and grab different kinds of vegetables, and I'd have to present them and plate them in a in a you know in, in an interesting way. 
And we were charging God knows what for 50 bucks or something. So it had to be really nice. I look back, most of the vegetables we would saute with chicken stock and butter. So I'm sure in the beginning when I first became vegan that people didn't really understand what it was if you if it, if it wasn't a vegan restaurant. And now you hear stories that there's chefs that deliberately put animal products in something when, when someone orders vegan as a little F you to, to them. So it was definitely misunderstood by my friends. It was misunderstood by my colleagues, especially, I mean, you know, the, these were people like, oh, dude, you're not going to be making your famous, you know, foie gras terrine and you're not, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm walking away from, you know, from all of that. So, but fortunately I had a supportive family, like I said, and I think it helped being in New York City while I was going through this transition. There were so many vegan restaurants. Start my first my first vegan job was at Angelica Kitchen, which was not only a vegan restaurant, it was this hub for ideas and a hotbed of, you know, political discussion and and religious discussion and all these other things. So I met so many other vegans there. Most actually most of which, in fact, we were talking earlier that we we know John Joseph in common. He was one of the first real vegan characters, like New York City vegans that I had met. So there was a lot of inspiration to be found, but you had to be in it. Whereas I think today, it's a lot easier. Speaking of Angelica's Kitchen, because I I think I ended up there by listening to John Joseph on one of Rich Roll's podcasts. Okay, of course. He's often talking about Angelica's Kitchen. Sure. that was an amazing, amazing restaurant, and I Absolutely. feel very privileged to have have gone there and had the cornbread and tried the the delicious food. And it's a shame that it's not there anymore. Absolutely, it's a sad story. But you worked there, and you've you know just explained that you've you've been vegan for twenty one years. Tell us how the the New York vegan plant based scene has changed over the last couple of decades from a chef's perspective? I would say for starters, 21 years ago, and I'm sure this this applies to the decade prior to that, veganism and health food were synonymous. They were, they were on parallel paths. So most of the vegan restaurants, and they kind of got a bad rap from a culinary standpoint. It was like these big clumps of brown things, you know, the, the cornbread, for instance, of Angelica Kitchen. I mean, you could have used it as a, as a doorstop. But it was very, very healthy. There was very little processed food, even though I remember this is maybe my first six months of being vegan. I'm working at Angelica and I'm saying to someone in the kitchen, oh, I don't do processed food. And this one guy who had been vegan a lot longer than I says, do you eat tofu? And I said, oh yeah, I love tofu. And then he explained, technically tofu was extremely processed. You went from a, a bean and then you end up with this thing in the end. But it was it, the the focus was on whole foods. There was not a lot of frying and deep frying. In fact, at Angelica, every once in a blue moon, we would take out a deep pot and fill it with oil and fry off some tofu or seitan or something like that. And what's happened over the years is that as the movement became more popular, and a lot more experienced chefs came in, chefs like myself who had pedigrees before, because I think also too, up until maybe 20 years ago, the restaurants that were in New York and Manhattan, they uh, and, and places like LA as well, they weren't run by chefs. 
They were run by vegans who wanted a place to eat vegan food and kind of learned on the fly. So some of these people were not chefs, but they became chefs, for lack of a better word, but they weren't classically trained. So I think as the movement became more popular and there was an influx of, of more professional chefs, then people started taking it. And I, and I tried my best. It was very difficult at Angelica because Leslie, the owner, was not a fan of change. But even 21 years ago, I was trying to elevate what we were serving there and saying, it doesn't have to be this kind of hippie food all the time. So what's happened, though, is that not only the number has increased, which is amazing. I mean, there's so many vegan options, uh, restaurants, dedicated vegan restaurants in Manhattan. Seems like there's new ones popping up every month. All the time. Yeah. And there's so much money. We'll get to that probably a little bit later. But there's so much more investment money that's coming into this space. And I've had the privilege of working with a lot of them. And sometimes I turn to them and say, where were you 21 years ago when I wanted to open up? You know, I, I had this idea to do a, like a vegan Starbucks which I think still would be a great idea. And I'm sure someone is probably working on something like that somewhere. But it was it was very vibrant and it was very organic, for lack of a better word. Like I said earlier, you had to be in it. You had to be going to these restaurants and going to meetups. In fact, we touched upon that earlier. I used to look at the whole thing of meetups and support groups, and I used to kind of scoff at it, but realizing that it really is important. I mean, Food is, it's a very intimate thing. You know, it's not only nourishing ourselves, but there's so many memories attached to it. Uh, there's so many reasons why we eat, if we're depressed or we want to be happy. So it's, it's an important decision to make. And when I first became vegan, I had no idea how much it would have, tra- how, how much it transformed me spiritually. So there were a lot of things coming into, into play, into my daily life that it was helpful to have other people to talk to about it. Like-minded people. Right. It's similar sort of awareness. Exactly. And and I guess 21 years ago, not not I guess, there wasn't social media. No. So it was the face-to-face community groups offering that peer support. Right. You know, that's why I admire what you do and a lot of other people who were in the social media space doing these, you know, this kind of work on the vegan front. You've been we, You've been able to reach a lot more people. You can, and in fact, we were also discussing this too earlier, how say I was, I, I grew up in Nebraska. Okay. And there wasn't a union square to, to take a train into and jump off and go to five different restaurants. And maybe you had to drive six hours to a restaurant that served some tofu or whatever. You were completely isolated. Now, doesn't matter where you are on the planet, you can access this information 24 seven and I think it's really, really important what you guys are doing because that's now the the meeting place. This is where the inspiration comes from. This is where the knowledge is coming from. The only thing that you don't have is the tactile sense of eating the food. But, you know, with food photography, I mean, you have some great photos on your on, on your page. So it's changed a lot. And I think this is also one of the reasons why the movement now, I think 21 years ago, they said the vegan population was between one and one and a half percent. Now we just found out 6%. today it's 6%. So that kind of exponential growth happened because of, of social media. With that growth comes more restaurant innovation, comes more product innovation. We've just touched on the fact that 21 years ago, 
you feel there was, you know, veganism in general, there was a little bit more synonymous with health. Right. And there was less processed foods. People were eating more whole foods. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. What are we looking at now in terms of processed foods and these transitioning type foods, how do you think they're going to impact the next decade of this movement? That's also a very good question. Speaking for generations in the past, I think most people gravitated towards veganism for health reasons. There still was the animal rights activism component of that, and that cannot be denied. And I think mine kind of was kind of intersected. My health wasn't very good, but it was also a moral decision. I think what's happened now is that we've gotten to the point that most of the the newly minted vegans that are coming off, you know, coming hot off the press, I think their main goal is to avoid animal suffering. 
It's coming from an environmental standpoint. You look what like Leonardo DiCaprio is sure. doing and inspiring people on that level. You look what Kip Anderson has done with his movies, Caspiracy, What the Health, making that connection of, hey, it's the environment. This is not, this is not just a decision about it's whether or not to eat a hamburger. This is destroying the planet that we live on. So I think a lot more vegans that are coming into the fold are just like, I don't care if it's healthy or not. I just don't want to eat animals anymore. So, and because of that, I think we've seen a trend away from super healthy food and more culinary inspired food that it's doesn't matter how, how we make it as long as it tastes good. And you also see even that, for lack of a better word, that almost like that stoner influence where it's like, now you can go to a vegan restaurant and get the burger with the mac and cheese mm. and the veg, veggie bacon and slathered and may, you know, uh, veganaise and things like that. So that's another reason why I think we've seen this, this, this spike in, in, in the numbers of, uh, of the vegan population. And I would say that um, 21 years ago, there were not a lot of processed foods for us to, to kind of transition. So I think 21 years ago, the transition happened very quickly or it didn't happen at all, really. You either just started eating super healthy or you tried it for a little bit and said, I can't do this and went back to your, to your old ways. And I certainly saw a lot of vegans that you know, didn't, didn't last too long. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. We have a lot more processed foods, which I think are going to help a lot of people make the transition to eating vegan to say, wow, this is, this is vegan. It's not too hard. So like the Impossible Burger, you probably don't want to eat too many of those, but I've had it now four times in the last year and a half. It blows me away every time. And the first time I had it with my buddy, Chad Sarno, was that at Crossroads in LA or? No, the first time I had it was uh, with my buddy Chad at Bear Burger down on LaGuardia. Yeah. Um, but the, the subsequent three times after that was I turned someone else onto it who wasn't vegan and they loved it. So, so it, serves a, it serves a great purpose. It serves a really big purpose. I think the, the one caveat to, uh, to keep in mind is that it should not be the foundation of your diet. So if you're going to go out and have an impossible burger, you know, have it with a huge salad or, you know, drink a lot of green juice beforehand, because some of these things are, are a little hard to, little hard on the body, a little hard to, to digest. Which I think is, you know, the, all of the highly respected doctors and, and whatnot that are out there really pushing the plant-based side of things. That's something they would reiterate strongly. Right. So, uh, we spoke before and, I recently went to the eating eating you alive. Correct, the premiere. Movie. Right, and which I missed, by the way. My friend Nell is gonna. Kill me. <laughs> it was it was it was a really really good documentary, and one of the strong focus points of it was what is a healthy plant based diet versus what may not be the healthiest type of vegan or plant based diet. Processed foods was a large part of that discussion, and and. Something that really hit home to me at the end was there was a and a and the cardiologist that was at the premiere stood up and someone asked a great question. They said, would you say a plant-based diet is healthier than a Mediterranean diet? And, and obviously over the last decade or so, the Mediterranean diet has had quite a lot of media and there's been a lot of journalism written about this diet leading to longevity. Mm-hmm. This cardiologist said he could 
wholeheartedly say, and and his colleagues as well, in agreement that a whole food plant-based diet is healthier than a Mediterranean diet, but a processed food vegan diet, he couldn't say is healthier than a Mediterranean diet. Right. So I think from a health perspective, people are on the same page that eating whole foods where you're getting your protein next to your fiber and, and everything else, all the micronutrients make sense, but the processed foods are certainly serving a great purpose to help people transition. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that, and that's one of the reasons why even in my, my own career, doing a lot of consulting and recipe development, I'm getting mostly calls now for things of doing analog versions of, you know, meat analogs, fish analogs, cheese analogs, things of that, of that nature. For instance, I'm, and we tried it earlier and I'm excited to get your, um, your absolutely fantastic, right? This new company that I'm working with that was started by my buddy, Chad and Derek Sarno, it's called good catch and it's plant-based tuna. And it's amazing. It's really the three things that we were trying to accomplish was one, it had to taste good. Now I knew because I've worked with Chad and Derek for the last 11 years, I knew it was going to taste great. They wanted to make it. Oh, and we also knew because it was made from beans and it also uses algae oil that we knew that we were going to be right in the ballpark of albacore tuna. And certainly with the protein and the omega threes, we're, we're right on par with albacore. I think the genius that came in was Chad working with our food scientist, as you could see, it looks and flakes and has the mouthfeel of tuna. So is it a processed food? Absolutely. On the spectrum, obviously it's important to note that there's within processed foods, it's a spectrum. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no, there, there are no weird oils in there. That's, that's a big thing as far as health is concerned. So for instance, you can have deep fried tofu, but the oil that you're, you know, they're using soybean oil, peanut oil, all these other things, they're really bad for you. So yeah, this, fortunately, this product is very clean by process standards, but I make my peace with it in the sense that 95% of the animals that we kill for human consumption are coming from the sea. When we look around at the 5 billion or so land animals that we kill every year, that's only 5%. We look at the destruction of the rainforest. We look at the the depletion of the uh, the underground aquifers. All of this stuff going towards animal agriculture. We see the devastation that's going on on the land. We do not know the depth of how we've destroyed the oceans, and that's why I think this is an important transition. When we do these, we're launching in October, but we've done all of these food shows. And we basically say like, if you could get something that looks and tastes like tuna, that gives you the same nutritional profile as actual tuna, but you're not killing any, any animals, you're not getting any PCBs or mercury or heavy dioxins metals. or yep. heavy metals, you're not getting any of that, would you still want to eat real tuna? And what, what's the feedback like at the expos when folks are coming up and trying it? What, what are they saying? I mean, I'm not one for hyperbole. We're blowing people away. I mean, the vegans are coming. They're absolutely loving. In fact, there's even some kind of pushback sometimes from vegans because every once in a while we'll come across vegans that they're like, I can't stand tuna fish. So I'm, I'm not even sure I want to try this. It looks so real. But the amazing thing is all the other, the other, the non-vegans that are coming in droves to the booth, for instance, where we just we just finished Expo West out in, in Anaheim. 
and we we and we keep winning awards, which is which is insane because we're not even for sale. I don't think companies have ever won best in show, and we don't even have the product yet to to sell. So so when's this hitting shelves? Where where and and we are looking at uh, October in the in the states in the states, yes. And and we know that as soon as it hits the shelves, it's gonna be it's gonna be a success because it's it's being packaged in shelf stable packaging, just like regular albacore tuna is um, it'll be convenient it'll be priced properly and it's made of legumes so is it five or six it's diff- six different legumes and algae oil there's also the other good thing about it is not there's there are no weird binders it's also gluten-free so i think we have a, a home run here and i look at it this way complete you know full disclosure after a, a food show of doing it for four or five days and eating this for four or five days I need to take a break from it. But if you use that as a supplement to your diet, I think it's an amazingly helpful. Which is no different to if you were eating tuna three or four times a day, same thing, or any food for that matter. Exactly. So part of a balanced diet. Right. So I think, I think especially, I mean, maybe you can't make the case for the doctor was saying that he can't say that a processed plant-based diet is better than the Mediterranean diet, but I think you definitely can make the case when it comes to seafood that eating a product like Good Catch is definitely healthier sure. than the fish component of a Mediterranean diet because... Well, I mean, just just of, of avoiding those heavy metals is, is huge. And, and tuna is a large fish. We were speaking about that before. And the, right. la- the larger the fish, the greater accumulation of heavy metals. Absolutely. And so we can't even, you know, that that's something that's not guaranteed anymore, even if it's, oh, it's, you know, and of course, it's, it's, there's a lot of marketing going on. We're getting a lot of blowback from fish companies that are starting to feel the kind of starting to feel that we're feel the absolutely, yeah. And, you know, they'll still go on and say, oh, we, you know, we're, we're working very hard to be sustainable and, oh, we're only fishing in the most pristine waters. You can't guarantee that. We've messed up the ecosystem so badly that, I don't think, I mean, maybe there's some remote parts of the planet that you can pull up this fish that's not, you know, been destroyed like we've, we've done it, but I think it's few and far between. So, so you're, you're working with the, the good catch and, and I'm going to put the website URL on my website on plantproof.com oh, awesome. on this podcast page. So if anyone else is interested, click through to that, have a read about it. You'll no doubt on the website be able to get all the up-to-date information on stockists and any news and new products and whatnot. And I encourage you to flick over to their social media on Instagram too, some really cool product shots and be definitely be something to keep your eye on. So that's super exciting. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously a big part of what you're up to now. What else is... Peter up to in in this space and where do you see yourself in in your time being put in the next five years? I would say for the first time in a long time, it looks really exciting. I think my relationship with Chad and Derek and some of the other people, this amazing gentleman by the name of Chris Kerr, who runs New Crop Capital. He was the one of the gentlemen I was referring to earlier, like, where were you 21 years ago? We now have access to people, to, to vegans with really high-level integrity who are also really, really good with money and who have access to it that are only looking to create more vegan products, products that will immediately 
put an end to animal suffering. So it's almost like there's this groundswell right now of we're putting a team together. And I'm also working with this other amazing team called Beyond Brands, which is this amazing collective of experts from business development to marketing and salespeople and chefs like myself and food scientists, where we can just see cranking out different ideas one after the other and new companies and so many new products and innovative things out that, that we can put out there. So I'm hoping that for the next five years that I'm going to be kept very busy doing what I love to do, which is obviously feeding people. It's one of the ways that I express love is through, through preparing food for people, but also developing products. I love kind of just working in the kitchen by myself and, and creating recipes and things of that nature. Um, and then just going on the road to support Good Catch and some of these other companies, which I'm not at liberty right now to discuss, but some, at least one very also even probably even more revolutionary than the Good Catch product. Yeah, wow. That will be rolling out hopefully uh, soon. So yeah, that's that's what the next five years looks like. And hopefully in five years, we'll have another discussion and maybe the numbers are not 6%, maybe they're 15%. Well, certainly I think with, I mean, products like this, no fish tuna and, and these other things, products which you alluded to, which are top secret by the sounds of it, are only going to make it easier for people to to either stick with it right. or to completely transition from their current animal-based diet. Right. It's not easy. Some people hold on to those traditions and they're they, you know, they don't want to they don't want to think about the suffering behind it. That's a it's a really good point is friends or family or, or anyone who's sort of against it now, you know, these days. Mm -hmm. Do you discuss that with people? Do you wait for them to sort of open up to you? Or you're at, if you're at a dinner table, I mean, it's obvious you've been vegan for 21 years now, so your close friends are very well aware of how you eat. So you're unlikely to get the question of, oh, why, why are you eating like that? But, you know, how do you approach that? Because I know that's a, a very common question for people in families and friendship groups of, you know, should they educate their friends how, how to do it? That's also a really good question. I think just like most people, and you probably could draw from your own experience as well. I think the first like couple of years, anyone becomes vegan, you're very militant about it. You know, and there's that joke. It's like, how do you know if someone's vegan? Just wait five minutes and they'll tell you. And I don't think that that method works for anything really. So what I have done let's say for the last 18 years is just try to lead through example. So, and we touched upon it earlier about dating, you know, we're both dating vegan women, which is, which is great, but there were, there were women in the past that were not vegan and I never pushed it on them. So just after there was one, one particular instance, only after two or three months of them being with me and me preparing food for them and their children, all of a sudden they were like, you know, and some of them ate healthy, you know, they did organic bison or buffalo, whatever burgers and stuff like that. All of a sudden, all that stuff was gone and they wanted to become vegan. So I think it's important to arm yourself with knowledge. And fortunately, because of websites like yourself and because of all these great movies that, that we mentioned earlier, arm yourself with knowledge. But I think let them let them come to you. Let Pick your time. And pick your time. That's true. Because I mean, it's hard for me to say this now too, but it's almost an open and shut case as far as I'm concerned. If I was a lawyer arguing this, I feel like 
you, you, you lost. Like if you look at it now, I mean, we always talk about, and I'm pretty sure it's still attributed to him that Albert Einstein said, nothing will benefit the, the survival of mankind on planet earth than a switch to a vegetarian diet. We can all pretty much agree that he was one of the most brilliant men in the 20th century. He saw ahead into the future. He saw this mess of factory farming. He saw this mess of factory fishing. He saw, you know, uh, advancements in health, prolonging longevity, you know, prolonging life, increasing longevity. And he said, this, this is an equation that's not going to work. And we're living it right now. And so, you know, when you hear statistics about global warming, and again, I'm still absolutely incredulous about people who will even argue that that climate change is a, is, is, is a thing, which it is, obviously. But a lot of people don't realize that the driver is their desire for cheap hamburgers and continuing to eat this, to eat this way. So, and, and, and buying those products is, is using their dollars to, to vote for that, essentially. And also people don't realize too, and again, you know, not going down this rabbit hole of, of politics, but the beef, the cheese, the, you know, the, the beef, the dairy, the seafood industries, they're all subsidized by the government. Those are not true costs of what you're paying for, for you know, going, going and getting a full, you know, filet at the grocery store. That's not the real cost. Which, which means the, the government is making them more affordable. Right. For families. Right. Which then affects the whole argument of, oh, plant-based is so expensive because you're looking at a, a, commodity or price of animal-based products, which are being falsely held down low. Absolutely. By government. Right. So it's, it's, uh, there's politics involved. You know, I remember studying this, uh, uh, political science major in college and studying about how poverty and malnourishment and people who were starving was not, not an issue of not having enough. It was how it's being allocated. So the same, it's the same thing. It's, it's what the government is focusing on as what they're going, you know, what they're putting their money behind, what they're putting their weight behind. There's a, there's still a long way to go. Do you feel that the, if you look at the movement in general and over the last two decades, it, has it been a gradual, this change of, of awareness and, and like right now, I certainly can feel that it's, it feels like more and more people every single day are becoming more aware of you know, what eating animals is doing to themselves and, and the environment. And it seems like it's really, really in the last say, 24 months, sharply increasing. That's from my lens, but from your lens, is it, is it, a, has it been a gradual change over the last couple of decades or are you really feeling some, some lift off and momentum, you know, more recently? I would say that you're probably, you said 24 months. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I would say that for the last well, let's say the the first 15 years, it was, it was very gradual. You know, we were, you know, we're struggling. I moved to Florida for a bit. I was maybe 10 years ahead of the curve over there, but you know, you'd find your tribes, you would do your potlucks, but usually it was like people, you know, we, we talked about it earlier. The movie that you went to last night seemed to have, it wasn't just preaching to the choir. Usually every other, the, the other movies that we've been to, it's like, Everyone here knows this already. We got to get the other people in. But I would say maybe, I would go maybe, I would say maybe the last, yeah, last two or three years, it's been exponential. Even just the last year of doing these food shows. So for instance, when we do the Natural Products Expo, 
that's kind of, those are our people. Those are the, that's lots of organic food, lots of vegan food. So we expect to crush it when we go to those things. We, you know, I think there was 125,000 people at this one, this last one. And it's amazing just walking the show. And, and, and the first show I ever went to was 19 years ago. Now the show is, is massive. The amount of vegan products that are out there. The interesting thing is going to a show like the Fancy Food Show, which is not necessarily our, you know, our people. This is products of every kind, you know, foie gras companies, uh, meat companies, you name it. We're seeing exponential interest in in what we're doing, and it just seems it's happening so quickly. And again, a lo- largely in part due to what you and and your and and people like you are doing on the social media front. What people like myself and Chad and Derek are doing on the food company front, what other people are doing opening restaurants. And there's quite a few people who are doing some amazing things all over the world with restaurants. Matthew Kenny, for instance, just opened up in your in your hometown over there. I think that is called Alibi in uh, Woolamaloo. 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 Oh, I, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't tried my accent out on you. I don't want to. So. With that, and then also, again, like people, like I had mentioned with um, Chris Kerr with New Crop Capital, now you have, it's this, it's finally, it's this intersection of, of education, of, of money, of business. You know, 21 years ago, we didn't have, I mean, you had to do it all if you were going to do it. If you were going to open up a restaurant or a food company, you had to do it all. Now, it's everyone's kind of pitching in. It's like, hey, I have a marketing background and I can, you know, I have a sales background, that kind of thing. There's a lot more driving factors. Yeah. And we just mentioned Matthew Kenny, and uh, we were speaking before about he's he's been opening up restaurants, it seems, left, right, and center. There's right. um, Plant Made just- Right, which I haven't had a chance to go Second into, Avenue, yeah. which is a cool little cafe. You mentioned before you actually worked at his culinary school. At his school, yeah. That, that was also extremely expire, uh, inspiring. That is uh, his- well, I don't think he's uh, he's no longer affiliated with the school. I'm not sure w- what exactly is going on there, but for quite some time he had a culinary school, and I had the privilege of teaching out in Venice in 2015. And I found, I mean, listen, as a chef, you have to be a teacher on some level. You know, you get a dishwasher who wants to, hey, I want to pitch in, I want to learn you know, you have to sit there and teach. And if you don't train your staff, then you're, you know, you're doomed to fail. But what I found teaching, in fact, we have some, we have a mutual friend in Shani, who was one of my students who was doing amazing things in Australia and Lebanon. I think education is also that. In fact, we didn't even touch on that. That's also another area. 21 years ago, there was not a vegan cooking school. I mean, there was the Natural Gourmet Cooking School in Manhattan, which I don't think was ever 100% vegan. But that was probably one of the only places that you could go to. And they've definitely improved their game over the last two decades. But I remember the education that someone got coming out of the Natural Gourmet, you could not compare to the education that I received at the Culinary Institute of America. So so if, 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 if there's a listener out there who is interested in becoming a plant-based chef, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and perhaps is already a chef but wants to change their skill set. Sure. What's, what's your advice for them? My advice, there are places like the Natural Gourmet in Manhattan. The school that Matthew founded is still going uh, strong, it's, it, but I think it's called Plant Lab. You'd have to, I, you'd have to check. Plant maybe. Lab, yeah, I've seen that. 
and they have schools, they have, they have schools that um, some of them have been pop-up schools, but some of them have more of a foundation. Los Angeles, I think there's also one that might be in New York uh, from time to time, but they've opened up schools in, in London, in Paris. So they're out there, but I would say the best thing to do, in fact, I just helped mentor a young kid who is finishing up college, but he really wants to work as a vegan chef. And um, fortunately, he's from New York, and I got him an apprenticeship at, at the Candle Cafe. One of New York's best, right? Yes, absolutely. In fact, Candle started shortly after Angelica. And I remember, I'm very close with Joy and Bart, the founders of Candle. But I would say 19 years ago, and I wouldn't say it was necessarily contentious, but it was competitive. And I'm happy to say that they have withstood the test of time. They expanded. They had a lot of vision. They have four restaurants now, I think. So I got him an apprentice uh, apprenticeship there. I'm not even sure if it was paid, but he had two months of solid experience working in in the kitchen. So that's that could also be a place to start is to volunteer at some of these restaurants or at food banks and things like that. So plus the other thing too, again, the, the with the advent of the internet, there's so much that you can just pull up and and teach yourself. It's 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 absolutely amazing. So you've mentioned Candle. Is it, is it, I was calling it Candle 79, but perhaps that's the wrong name. No, no. Candle 79 is one of them. Then there's Candle West and there's the original Candle. If you're visiting from New York, definitely check out one of those. In, in addition to Candle, and um, unfortunately Angelica's kitchen is no longer there, what are your top five eats in New York City for anyone visiting? And it can be anything from a quick cafe style takeaway all the way up to, you know, fine dining, memorable dinner? Right. That is a really good question because there are so many. Well, you put me on the spot. All just these, just, I mean, just these while are- you're thinking, I'll, I'll, I will say that I personally find the Happy Cow app. Have you? Have you mm, absolutely. Yes. It's a great app for anyone traveling to any city, but I've been in New York now for on this trip, 10 days and, you know, previously similar sort of lengths of time. And when I'm stuck for a new place to eat, I just throw that app on and plug in my current location and there is places everywhere. Right. Absolutely. So I would say definitely one of the candles. I prefer Candle West. I think that's the, it's the, for me, it's the nicest location. Although I know a lot of people, I think John Joseph's go-to spot is, is Candle 79. Which is East? Is that East? Uh, Columbus Circle, yep. I believe. Columbus yeah. Circle. So, but I, I prefer Candle West. Another one of my favorites, and it's been a go to of mine for a long time. I used to go to Hungawi all the time, which is Korean vegan. That was my go to place for like a first date because it was very elegant. You take your shoes off, it has the sunken area where you sit down. The service was very kind of sublime and uh, really nice. But they have a sister restaurant called Francia which is right on Park Avenue. It's a lot more casual. It's a Korean vegan tea house. That seems to be, and it's also close to Grand Central. So that's probably one of the reasons, but it's great food. So I would say Francia, I like a lot. So we've got Candle, we've got Francia. I did have the opportunity to go to Kajitsu last year for my 20th. I took myself there for my 20th vegan anniversary. It is the only Michelin starred vegan restaurant, I think in this country. I think there might be one in, in France. That was absolutely amazing. Although I, f- I did find out, find out that they sometimes still serve fish during lunch because it's still very popular with Japanese businessmen. But 
go for the tasting. I, for my date and myself, it was $400. It was pretty expensive. So I would say that's the, that's a memorable night. Right. That's the ultimate. Wow. Well, we've, we've certainly got organic grill, which has recently gone. So yeah, that's true. That's one of the places that I would not always recommend because it still had animal products. So I'm happy to say after, uh, well, I was there 18 years ago. So after 18 years of prodding Vladimir to just go all vegan, he did a while ago now. It's been three months. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think, yeah, around four months. Yeah. So, which he says has been, you know, super positive and very well received by everyone. Yeah. I mean, I think he was concerned that there was going to be the people who were coming in for fish every week and like the macro people to get their steamed veggies and stuff like that and their eggs on, on the, uh, you know, on, on Sundays for brunch. But I told him in the long run, this is, you know, this is where it's at. So he's definitely uh, doing that. So that's, that's four. No, that's three. Two more. Well, let me ask you, why don't you tell me some of your favorites and I will, and I will tell you where they, because the other, th- the other thing too is I'm, I'm actually, which is very strange, I'm drawing a blank. I, I, I love Organic Grill. I think um, Vladimir's got something really good going on there. Yeah, so I'm very impressed. With- I just like the, it's, it's a really quaint little place. It's got a great little atmosphere, nice staff. Absolutely. Um, and great sort of home cook style food. Yeah. Nothing too over the top. So that sort of suits me really nicely. In terms of something quick and on the go, I find Beyond Beyond Sushi. Oh, okay. That's a great place. Vegan Japanese. It's not a, you know, romantic date type destination. There's a few of them around the city, but, and there's one in uh, Chelsea Market. So just a nice quick place, pretty interesting jet take on Japanese food. Right. And I went to an interesting place recently called Lobotanist. Which has a uh, a menu behind the the counter with all the different. It's completely 100% vegan, plant based. There's a few of them. There's one in Soho, and above the menu, instead of saying menu, it says prescription. Right, food is medicine. Food is medicine, and and I think on the entrance it says food is medicine. But the food's fantastic. They do you know a handful of different savory bowls. They do sort of sweet options, and that's a really cool place too. Yeah, Beyond Sushi is good. Um, you know, I don't. What do you got? Blossom. Blossom is great. Blossom, and yeah. I know they have a few locations. I went to one. Around Chelsea. Right. That's the one I've been and, to. And that yeah, was which excellent, is great. excellent service. And- you might want to also check. I, I don't know if I want to rate five. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> cooperating. I mean, I like Terry. I've been, I've been to Terry a few times for a quick bite. They have a couple of really cool and also gluten-free options. Definitely check out the Cinnamon Snail at the Pensy. Cinnamon Snail, yeah. I've okay, so the Pensy is Penn Station's food court. And they have a, uh, a little stall in there. And it's amazing, but it's that, that's, you know, I, I know Adam, I don't know if he's a stoner, but that food is like, he has tater tots with kimchi and sriracha mayonnaise and all sorts of uh, fun stuff. So that's a good place to check out. Yeah. What else? Where, where else have you been? How long have you been down here? Been, I've been in East Village this trip for 10 days. Oh, wow. Okay. So... I mean, to be honest, I've been eating it organic grill quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. I think I think that's great, and and they are turning things around, which I'm happy to say because there were there were a few times there over the years, especially when I was in Florida, and I would come back and I'd be like, guys, you know. And so. I, I think probably be remiss of us to not mention by Chloe. 
serves serves a like Chloe does serves, very nice job a too. Yeah. So a little more of a fast foody option. Mm-hmm. A little more sort of takeaway-ish than I would like in terms of eating every day, but it's a great option to to go once a week or twice a week. Absolutely, yeah. Um, even even pretty pretty cool place to take someone who's not a vegan as well to see that it's got a fun atmosphere. Right. I would say most of the restaurants we mentioned and probably most of the restaurants that are out there now are very suitable for as far as the decor and what have you. Like I just remember going back to Angelica Kitchen we were right next to John's, which is an old school Italian, like going way back, like mobster days, kind of Italian restaurant. In fact, now, which I find very funny is that they actually put on their marquee vegan because they do sell a few vegan dishes. But you would see these people coming out of this restaurant, very well-to-do people would come out of the restaurant and Angelica just had these big bay windows and you'd have people looking at the place like, Oh my God, these people are from another planet. So even Angelica still had that kind of crunchy, hippie vibe kind of thing. But I would say there's so many restaurants now today that you don't, I mean, like going to Kajitsu was this absolutely gorgeous restaurant and you're getting, I think it was 10 courses and it's all, it's just another restaurant, right? Or you go to any of the candles. They're absolutely beautiful. Any of Matthew's places. I mean, he's got an amazing eye for design. So you go in there, it's just a beautiful restaurant. John George's uh, ABCV, which I have not been to yet either. Seasoned Vegan was the other one I went to. Seasoned? Seasoned Vegan, which is in Harlem. Wow, that I, that, I don't even I know that one. See, ended, it's like, I, I ended up in Harlem five days ago. I love yeah. Harlem, but I had no idea that there was this. And, okay. Um, that was a happy cow find. And I, yeah, it was fun. It was, it was really interesting. They had um, a, a menu. I think it might have had a little bit of a, an African-inspired menu. Right. All, all, all obviously 100% vegan. Um, I'm going to check. You know what? None of those other questions you asked threw me, but I usually... People have asked me before, and I would just write down. There's a great place in Williamsburg that my brother's a huge fan of called Screamer's Pizza. Oh, okay. have not been there yet. So they specialize in vegan pizza for anyone that's. Okay. So I found a list that I had written a long time ago. I had listed Hungawi Peace Food Cafe. Have, that, have you Heard been? Of that haven't been yet. That's a great little place. I love, they have two locations. They have one on Union Square and one uptown, I think in the 80s or 70s in Amsterdam. And there's uh, another one down on First Avenue, down just down the road from here, East Village, which is, I think it's 90% of the menu is vegan. There's 10% it's vegetarian called Devia's Kitchen. Oh, you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that. I went there with my girlfriend last year and I really liked it. It's a, it's a very beautiful place, but very, very natural kind of restaurant. No, no, you know, not very ornate. And we liked the food so much because it was very simple. It was almost like Angelica style food in the sense it was very simple preparation, but it was very clean in the mm. sense of like the flavors were clean. It was uncomplicated. And I have not had a chance yet to go back, but I'm on their mailing list and they send like updates, like this is the menu for tonight and stuff like that. So it's almost kind of like harkens back to the old school vegan restaurant, but with a, with a more, with a, with a fresher take. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I do, I do like. I had a, uh, 
a really delicious curry there the other day. Yes, I've had the curry there, yeah. Great home home style cooking. Yeah. Well, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure to get you on the podcast. Super, super happy that Vladimir was able to connect us. Same here. And uh, like you said before, I, I think we'll do another podcast. We'll get some updates. I have a feeling it might be sooner than five years at the rate that you're moving. I and, hope so too, yeah. Um, I know that I have truly been inspired by our conversation today and the listeners are certainly going to be inspired as well. So I understand your time is um, super precious. So thank you very much. Well, thank and you. The No Fish Tuna was absolutely delicious, mate. So I wish you and, and the rest of the team all the best with that. Thank you. We're very excited. And I too have been very inspired by this conversation. It's it's always to know that you're that you're doing this in Australia. So, I mean, it's like, is you you just you're taking this and bringing it to your home and you're spreading that that love it's it's very important these connections are important and i'm really glad that we've had this opportunity to to do that and inspiring i mean that's what i think we're all here for is to inspire each other to help each other to hold each other up to the light so we will continue to do that brother and that's this week's episode of the plant proof podcast connect with myself and the plant proof community at plantproof.com and at plant underscore proof on Instagram. Don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to receive our free plant-based nutritional information, including recipes, important blogs, and much more direct to your inbox. Until next time, folks, I'm your host, Simon Hill. Keep your spacesuit plant-proof.